I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books, Bold Ideas, a show and podcast where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. Today, we're launching an election year series that asks, what is American democracy in 2024? Now, Americans come to that question with significantly different views. Just listen to the tenor and debate from the candidates in the presidential campaign. And what American democracy was when this country was founded isn't necessarily what it is today or will be tomorrow. Democracy is dynamic. Heather Cox Richardson spends a lot of time thinking about these questions and more. She's a historian and professor at Boston College, and she writes a newsletter called Letters from an American. Her newest book is titled Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. And she joins us today from Florida, although she's usually in Boston. Professor, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I think many Americans uh, believe that democracy is settled, unshifting, not dynamic. You write towards the end of your book, the true history of American democracy is that it is never finished. Can you explain what that means? Yes, I can. And I think that this is one of the really exciting places that we are in this country right now. And that is, if you really think about what our government is, is it's an attempt of people, very different people, to work together and to create rules under which we are willing to live and under and to which we bind ourselves. And that's in the Declaration of Independence. So this idea that somehow there was a perfect past, that if only we could get back to it, everything would be fine, is, I think, one that serves authoritarians rather than the real vibrant democracy that has, in fact, since the very beginning, enabled Americans who are marginalized or excluded from the body politics politic to expand our democracy and make it much more a living, breathing object that reflects us as people rather than some ideology that doesn't really fit anybody. So Heather, I often think that the idea that our democracy is going to be pulled and shaped and sculpted and challenged by people who want this democracy to live up to its promise is disconcerting, dismaying, threatening to some Americans. And I wonder if you attribute the tension that we're seeing uh, over what the idea of our democracy is uh, in our culture right now. How do you assess that? Our democracy has always been tense. It has always been pulled. There have always been those who have been excluded from it, who are eager to be included in it, and have constantly referred back to the Declaration of Independence and the things promised there, the idea that people would be treated equally before the law, and the idea that everybody has a right to have a say in their government, you know, with with the idea that everybody should be included in that, and they want to be included in it as well. So that has always been here since the very beginning, you know, after Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of of independence in 1776, there's this, this famous scientist, a man named Benjamin Banneker, looks at these principles that are outlined in the Declaration, and he says, he actually writes to Thomas Jefferson and says, you know, this is a great idea, but what about me? Because he's black, and he recognizes that these highfalutin ideas do not include marginalized Americans like him. And this is, you know, way back in the 1770s. So the concept of democracy has within it that tension of who gets included, what voices should be included in our 
politics, what voices should be included in our government, and how we jockey amongst them to create a set of laws that we are willing to bind ourselves under. So those things have always been there. But at the same time, there has always been a backlash against those things, or sometimes a front lash from people who say, wait a minute, I don't think everybody should be treated equally before the law. I don't think everybody should have an equal say in our government. And those two threads, the idea that some people really are better than others and have a right and maybe a duty to rule over the rest of us, and the idea that everybody should be treated equally before the law and have a right to a say in their government, have always been intention in the United States of America. And I think what we are seeing now is the same thing that we have always seen in times when a lot of roles are changing. That is those people who don't want to share access to the government are turning against those people who say, hey, what about me? I have a right to have a say here. And one of the things you see right now, and and there's a lot of focus right now, of course, on the, the new voices coming in from other countries, the new um, marginalized voices who are now now sitting in positions of real power in the United States, one of the things we don't talk a lot about in that uh, in those changes is the rise of women and the fact that women have taken on so many more visible positions of power in the United States. And one of the things you're seeing, I think, is the misogyny that sits at the idea that, you know, men are better than women and have the right to rule. So I think those two threads have always been with us. At the end of the day, we as a democracy have to grapple with which we believe because a world in which some people are better than others and have the right to rule is not a democracy. It's one that aligns much more closely with authoritarian governments. And you're seeing that around us today. On the other hand, you have people who really say, hey, yeah, we all should have a seat at the table. And at the end of the day, it is up to us in this moment to choose which way the United States of America is going to jump. You know, it's so odd. Um, and the idea, I think I hear you saying at the center of democracy is an inclusiveness, a, a, a virtue, a tenet of inclusiveness. And yet it seems like the minute the, de the American democracy was born, there was a lot of uh, push for exclusiveness. No, you don't fit. No, you're not going to be included. No, you're not going to have the same rights. Is, there, is that something that is unique to American democracy? Or will you find that in, in the way other democracies are are born and and live and breathe well, so I'm a specialist in the United States of America, and I cannot speak definitively about any other country. I haven't studied them. I don't know their theories. I don't know, uh, you know, in many cases, the languages. What I will say, though, about the United States is a funny thing about the founding of American democracy, because indeed, the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence, many of them were enslavers. They certainly did not believe that women had any role to play in American society, and they were not keen on indigenous. Americans. They really were a very small group of propertied white men. So how do they get to the idea that all men are created equal? I mean, it seems phenomenally um, just paradoxical that you would both enslave other human beings and then in the next moment say, we are all created equal. And 
the answer to that, I think, building on what historians have said before me, is that, in fact, for the United States of America, which it wasn't at the time, I'm sorry, for the colonies from Great Britain to declare that they were a nation based on the idea that all men were created equal was not actually to them a paradox. It depended on the idea that many people were unequal because they were certainly not able to say to themselves, oh, yeah, you know, indigenous Americans and, and us are just the same. What they were able to say to themselves was that we are all created equal because the people we're talking about are a very small group of people who are generally the same. They're white Hmm. propertied men. And so they could look at that group of men and say, we should be considered exactly the same as the other white propertied men back in in Great Britain. So that idea that, um, that equality actually depended on inequality is, I think, the centerpiece of the Declaration of Independence. Now, the trick to that, though, is that while they certainly did not intend at all, most of them anyway, to include women or indigenous Americans or black Americans in their definition of equality, the principles that they put into that Declaration of Independence were expandable. They were ideas. They were ideas that said you cannot have a government in which everybody is not treated equally before the laws. And of course, we have expanded who that everybody is ever since 1776. And you cannot have a government in which people don't feel that, that it represents them. They must be have the, the right to consent to their government, also in the Declaration of Independence. So to me, it's it's There are two things that are three things, I guess, that are really important. One, that the declaration was rooted in that paradox. Two, the idea that that small group of white propertied men over time has expanded so dramatically. And three, I think the thing that's always that people tend to forget when they look at the beginnings of the Declaration of Independence is that this idea that people should be treated equally before the law and have a right to a say in their government is extraordinarily radical. It was incredibly radical in 1776, and it remains radical today. And that idea that we are part of a radical movement of um, empowering individuals to choose their own destinies was, as I say, overwhelming in 1776. It continues to be overwhelming, I think, today. I'm, you know, I'm very proud to be part of this movement. So two things or, or more about what you've just said. I, you're reminding me about a conversation I had recently with um, Texas A&M historian Elizabeth Cobbs about her book, Fearless Women. And she writes, a, you know, she creates these profiles of these women who were pushing for their rights, and really courageous patriots at a time when even people who said what you've just described, equal rights for everyone, uh, democracy, we need to bring people into this, into the idea of this shared democracy. These women were pushed against very hard by the ruling political class and the ruling um, aristocrats, I guess, of the time in Americans. So even though they were espousing a lot of the the virtues that these democratic creators were talking about, they were shunned and um, and ignored in a lot of cases. I guess that makes sense, given what you've just said. Well, it does. And every group that has insisted on its inclusion in the principles of the Declaration of Independence has found itself against the ropes more often than not. The, mm. the, 
way, though, I think that they have managed to expand liberal democracy comes first from the the concepts that were put into the Declaration of Independence, the idea that people should be treated equally before the law, as I say, and have a right to a say in their government. But how do you translate from that to the idea that it is in the interests of people who are already included in the system to expand that system? Because that's the Mm -hmm. other thing that's really astonishing if you think about American history is how when we get expansions of voting rights, for example, to to women, to minorities, when you get those, the people who vote to put those things in place are those people who are already on the inside by definition, right? You can't vote unless you're already on the inside. So what makes them turn around and say, hey, yeah, I think it's a great idea to include women, for example, or I think it's a great idea to back the Voting Rights Act in the 60s. Uh, What makes them do that? And that, I think, takes us back to Lincoln, who articulated so very well in the 1850s why the idea of equal rights was so important to people who who really were already on the inside. And what he managed to do in the 1850s in a time of extraordinary racism in our country, of course, was to say to the voters at the time, and these would all be white men, almost exclusively white men of property, was to say to them, if you accept the idea that some people are better than others, you know, that very fundamental idea that is that is against the idea of American equality. If you mm-hmm. accept the idea that some people are better than others, it's only a question of time until you get defined as one of the people who are on the outside. And of course, when Lincoln's talking about this in the 1850s, the United States, different states were in fact discriminating against different groups of people. You know, obviously we talk primarily about the enslavement of African-Americans in the American South, but we also had, of course, the laws in Massachusetts that were discriminating against Irish immigrants, laws in in, um, California that were discriminating against the Chinese. It was clear to Lincoln that the United States was in danger of creating a series of castes, if you will, of different groups in which some people had the right to testify in court, some people did not. Some people had to pay taxes that other people didn't have to pay. Some people could go to certain places that other people couldn't go to. And once you have accepted that, once you've accepted the idea that some people get better treatment than other people in a nation, you have accepted the concept that some people are better than others. And once you have done that, you have accepted the idea that there are different varieties of people, if you will, different different um, levels of people. And ultimately, that leads to the idea in his, in his era of oligarchy or monarchy. In our era, I think what we're looking at is oligarchy or authoritarianism. And that concept that you better stick up for everybody, because if you don't stick up for everybody, it's only a question of time until you're the ones saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, please don't discriminate against my religious group or my skin color or my gender. And you you will be on the receiving end of that. So it's all or nothing. You can't sort of give up some of that principle. You have to either embrace the principle of equality or admit that it is not uh, it is not a reality and throw your lot in with the, the monarchs and the oligarchs. And that concept, I think, is one that increasingly the people in the United States recognize in times of tension like the ones we're in. This is not the first time we've had a situation like we're in today in which there's a sense that there is, you know, the, the tension between people trying to expand equality and people trying to contract it. But when we have done that, what has turned the tide to expand liberal democracy is the recognition that, 
At stake is not just us versus them. At stake is, are we going to be a nation in which we feel like our own rights are protected because everybody's rights are protected? Or are we going to say, yeah, these people are going to have a few more rights than these people. And I'm just hoping I'm on the, on the right side of that because we, as the as the government gets uh, you know more and more under siege and and starts to discriminate against people, those who recognize that their own rights might be on the line start to step up to the plate and say, no, we need to reinforce as Lincoln did the concepts of equality before the law. Uh, I want to bring you something that historian Eric Foner has to say, but let me do this first. You're listening to Heather Cox Richardson. She is a historian and professor at Boston College, and she writes a newsletter called Letters from an American. We're talking about some of the ideas at the center of her newest book, and then some of the ideas that are going to animate our series throughout the election year, asking what is American democracy in 2024. Heather's newest book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Um, so I had a conversation recently with, with Eric Foner, and he's written about this idea that there has long been a strain of what he calls hostility to democracy in America. And I want you to listen to a little bit um, of what he said and then reflect on it. Here he is. There have been many, many people in our history who have felt that too many people are voting, that the right to vote ought to be restricted to those who are supposedly better able to utilize it. Needless to say, racism is deeply embedded. This is a society which was built on slavery in its economic foundations. That produced a deep strain of hostility to non-white people in our history. I mean, would you... Would you put it as actual hostility to the ideas that are at the very center of democracy? Do you think Americans would recognize that today? Sure. I mean, yeah, the, the idea of suppressing the vote or making sure certain people can't vote is, uh, is I mean, I'm a little bit, uh, first of all, I'm a little bit torn between how between hearing um, Eric Foner's voice, because isn't he a lovely man? Yes. It's just so nice he's to hear wonderful. him. He's, just the, he's one of the <laughs> nicest men on earth. But also, I, I'm a little bit speechless just because absolutely, the idea of expanding the vote to include people who have not been, been who have not voted in the past or getting rid of people who are voting in ways that people in power don't like is is central to the American experience. Now, one of the things that's interesting about American democracy being as it is one of the oldest democracies or the oldest democracy in uh, still existing in, in the world um, is that we did a, made a lot of uh, uh, set down a lot of patterns in the beginning that have not necessarily served us well. And one of the things to point out nowadays is we are a democracy that does not guarantee in our constitution the right to vote. That's a very odd thing. And the struggles mm. over who gets to vote and how they are um, going to be included in voting have shaped our history since the beginning. So, for example, women could vote in New Jersey in the very early years, uh, years of the Republic, and they got the vote taken away from them when they began to support the political party that was not in power. The party that was in power decided that women didn't shouldn't vote because they obviously didn't understand what was best for the states as far as they were concerned. Similarly, of course, we we had the expansion of black voting after the Civil War, and that gets suppressed by the states. And you see that not only through things like the Jim Crow laws, uh, you can see that into the 20th century 
with things like voter IDs and the way that you can manipulate a population that goes to the, the polls by saying, yes, for example, you can use your hunting license as an ID, but no, you can't use your student ID. Another uh, another recent way to, to call who votes is to say that the the names on your voting registration have to be exactly the same as your legal name. Well, who does that hit? Who changes their name a lot in American society? Women. So there are lots of ways that people in power who didn't like the way certain demographics voted could make sure that they got cut out of the vote at a much higher rate than the people who supported those in power. And this has just been a constant. Now, one of the problems with that is that in periods in which we have a lot of voter suppression, the government ceases to accurately reflect the people who are living under it. And then you get back to the problem that's laid out in the Declaration of Independence, the idea that a government is only legitimate if it has the support of the people it governs. And if you're telling pe- you know, a majority of people that they're not allowed to have a, a say in society, you've got to find some other way to make them adhere to the, the, the government. And that there aren't a lot of options for doing that outside of violence. You write in in the foreword of Democracy Awakening, democracies die more often through the ballot box than at gunpoint. And it reminded me of a conversation I had last year, might have been end of 20, no, right at the beginning of 2023, with Barbara F. Walter, who wrote How Civil Wars Start. And really the point of that book is we have this uh, dated and and at this point, inappropriate image of what a civil war is. It is not two armies facing each other across, you know, a river and firing on each other. It's going to look more like, well, some of the insurgencies that I think we see brewing in parts of the United States. So will you speak more to this idea about democracies are really more at threat through how people exercise or don't their votes? Yes, with the caveat that we're only talking about the United States of America. Mm. Certainly in some countries right right now, civil wars do look like different groups of people shooting at each other across a river. Um, So here, though, one of the things I think it's important to remember about where we are politically and what a civil war in air quotes here might look like or might mean is I always like to start with the realization that the vast majority of Americans share the same beliefs. I mean, you would never know that if you listen to our politics, but you know, more than 80% of us want common sense gun safety legislation. You know, last, uh, the, the last, uh, poll I've seen 69% of Americans want the, uh, want Roe v. Wade to be put into law. You know, we want climate change addressed. We like the idea of infrastructure. We like, uh, uh, we even like taxes on higher taxes on the wealthy and on corporations. Most of us are in this broad middle and, and polls will show you this. We agree with each other on most things. Now in the 19th century, I think you could probably have said the same thing in the 1850s that most people agreed on most things. The issue was that a very small group, a relatively small group of leaders didn't want those things. They wanted a very different kind of government that would protect their right to property and would do very little else because they didn't want to have their businesses regulated. In the 1850s, it would have been enslavement regulated. And they didn't want the idea of an active government that 
Americans wanted, but that would cost tax dollars. So what they did in order to retain power was to weaponize language and to weaponize the idea of what American democracy was to convince enough voters that they, the voters, were under siege by those other people in the 1850s, uh, Black uh, Americans and the, the Northerners who supported the idea of keeping enslavement in the American South and not letting it spread to the West. They demonized those other people to convince their voters that there was, in fact, this existential threat between these two groups of people. And I think we're seeing something very similar right now. That idea then creates this in, in the, in the 1850s, it created a situation where in many ways, I think those leaders kept trying to whip up their followers in such a way that they would continue to turn out of the ballot box and they would continue to do what those leaders said. The problem was that pretty soon those followers ended up getting a momentum of their own. And they, of course, had been told repeatedly that the Northerners would never fight. There's one famous line in which an elite Southerner says that he will personally drink all the blood that is shed during the Civil War. And, you know, they very, they, they quickly move the South out of the the Union, they quickly say, well, we're going to be our own country and it's going to be peaceful and we're going to have all the money and everything's going to be great down here. And of course, what they do is they drag their region and their voters into a situation that just devastates both the region and their followers. So, you know, one of the things that that you see right now, I think, is the constant escalation of language in the part of the leaders of this minority to convince their followers that they're in an existential crisis, that they must continue to put their leaders in power, or the entire country is going to, you know, go to hell in a handbasket. And I worry about those followers taking on uh, a power of their own that drags the leaders along with them. So I want to ask you about the come back to the broad middle for a minute, because as soon as you started describing that, I thought of because you had mentioned Roe v. Wade. I thought of the votes that happened in Kansas and Ohio where I think people from the broad middle stepped in to say, we're, we see this Supreme Court decision, we've got the chance on this referendum to make our voices heard, and they decided that they wanted the right, with some caveats, to obtain an abortion. The, what, what I don't understand about the broad middle, though, is that when often when voters from that part of the political culture are making decisions, they are reinstating or electing leaders that don't seem very interested in representing um, their idea of what the broad middle is. Well, there, there's a, a simple answer to that. There's a complicated answer and there's a simple answer, but the simple answer is gerrymandering. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that happened in 2010 was the effort of a group of Republican operatives to take control of state houses through an or, mm -hmm. through a, a, an effort called Operation Red Map. And Red Map stood for the Republican uh, Redistricting Majority Project. And the idea was to take over state houses, and many people don't pay a lot of attention to their state house elections, was to take over state legislatures in 2010, right before the redistricting of 2010, because we do in the United States a census every 10 years. 
it's in our constitution. There has to be a census. And and I just have to say on this, many times I hear people saying, oh, this is the government, you know, asking too many questions about us. And for historians, the census is solid gold because it's a snapshot of the United States and one night, essentially. It was more like, a you know, a few months in the 19th century. But, you know, we would learn, for example, how many horses there were in the country or nowadays, how many cars there are and how people heat and, you know, all these things that we don't know otherwise except impressionistically from our statistics. So the idea that the census is some kind of a a plot is something that makes people like me get really unhappy because we need it so very badly just to understand who we are. But of course, the idea behind the census in uh, during when the Constitution was written, was that we have to be able to carve up our districts in such a way that people feel represented. Well, if you take over the state houses and let one political party carve up its state however it wants, what you end up with are districts that are guaranteed to elect that party, whoever has carved up the districts as they did. And w- after 2010, we've always had gerrymandering. It's actually named for Elbridge Gary. It's a weird spelling. I mean, it's a weird different pronunciation, but it's the same guy who was a governor of of Massachusetts uh, in the very early days who signed into law a a map that would enable the state of Massachusetts to do exactly what we're talking about here, gerrymander districts, even though he didn't want to do it. He felt it was the wrong thing to do. Um, Ironic that his name is stuck to it. But The idea of carving up your districts so that, for example, in the case of Wisconsin for a long time or North Carolina, Republicans have way more representation that they should in a state, in two states that are divided pretty much evenly. But what that means for the people within those gerrymandered districts is that the people running for office know they're going to win. So the issue is less trying to find somebody who can appeal to the middle. The question is, how can you make sure that you are not going to be forced out by somebody even more to your right that will appeal more strongly to that gerrymandered district? And this is how we get extremists, for example, like... um, Colorado's Lauren Boebert, who was in, I think it was a plus 17 district off the top of my head, um, in which she was virtually guaranteed to win. The issue was who would be in that seat to win. And that's given us a number of state legislatures and congressional delegations who don't really feel the need to appeal to the middle at all. What they do feel the need to do is appeal to their base. And that base has been shrinking dramatically, um, certainly in the Republican Party, since at least 2016. And that means that they are becoming more and more out of step with that general American middle. I think we're headed for a crisis. And I say that as a historian, not as somebody alive in this moment in the political parties, because what do you do when you have a political party that is exercising, in a sense, majority uh, control that is a very small group of extremist Republicans right now in the House of Representatives are refusing to put even before the House of Representatives measures that are extraordinarily popular. What does that do when that very small group of people does have control, enough control to stop what the majority wants? And this is, you know, a thing that hasn't happened all that often in our history. And I think we're seeing it play out in real time right now in the United States. So let's talk about where Donald Trump uh, fits into this. You write that he's been especially adept at, quote, marrying Republican politics to authoritarianism, he offered those left behind by the Republican Revolution 
a way to recover a mythological lost world in which they called the shots. You've spoken to this at the beginning of our conversation, but will you flesh out more of this idea of what this lost world looks like and why it is so appealing in this moment to the people who follow him? Well, there's almost a cottage industry right now on whether Donald Trump is a continuation of the Republican Party or whether he is something new altogether. And I show my Libra roots when I say he's both. So one of the things that people tend to forget is that when Donald Trump ran in 2016, he really embodied the the language of the Republican Party since at least the 1980s, in which he kept saying, oh, you know, we can have all these nice things if it weren't for those people, those socialists over there, and the whole idea of people who voted Democratic or wanted the government to address inequalities in society were somehow socialists. It has nothing to do with international socialism and the economic ideals that that embraces. It has everything to do with minority voting in the United States, and we can talk about that if you wish. But um, when he was running in 2016, people tend to forget that while he certainly was sexist and racist, he was also the most economically moderate Republican running that year. He called for cheaper and better health care. He called for infrastructure. He called for bringing manufacturing jobs back. And he called for closing loopholes in the tax structure that enabled wealthy people to get away without paying their taxes. Now, that all went by the wayside by the time he was in office. But he was appealing right there not only to the racism and sexism that became so visible later on, but also to the Americans who had been left behind by the economic policies of the years since 1981, because every statistic you will see will show you that since 1981 and the first set of Ronald Reagan's tax cuts, wealth has moved up dramatically in American society, dramatically. So we've gone from a period that economists call the Great Compression, in which people who were the very wealthiest in society and people who were the poorest had their wealth and income somewhat compressed to a period in which we now have just the opposite, this this great divergence, as economists call it, in which people at the very top have gotten very, very wealthy indeed, and the middle class was utterly hollowed out. So he spoke to a certain group of people who felt that the economic system and the politicians who were putting it in place were not responding to their needs. And that was legitimate, that idea that there was this hollowed out middle class. But once he got into office, especially after the Unite the Right rally in 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia, he turned those disaffected Americans into a movement. And that's a very different thing. And it's a new thing in the United States for an American president to do. And what he did there was to to get people to be in the streets acting violently. And that's really going to take off uh, in 2017 when he refuses to back away from the people who had created the violence in Charlottesville. But it snowballs from then until we get the the statement in 2020 that he uh, tells the Proud Boys to you know stand back and stand by. And I think escalates to where we had the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And what that 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 construction of a movement uh, did was it took people on the streets who were mad about something, although they weren't necessarily articulate about what they were mad about, 
and got them to begin to engage in violence and to engage in violence against those that they disliked and to be supported by Donald Trump and his people in that violence. And the reason that I'm spelling that out as I am is because this is precisely the way that authoritarians weaponize their followers. That is, if you can get people to start to bond with each other and and create violence together, they are far more open to uh, an ideology pushed by a strong man or an authoritarian. They don't necessarily begin as political actors, but they are welcoming to new ideas of political activism. They start to see their violence as part of a political act, and that makes them a very dangerous group of people by the time you get to something like January 6th. So Trump is both a reflection of this period from 1981 until I would say about 20, uh, about 2020, maybe 2021, in which the Republican Party managed to slash regulations and slash taxes by convincing their followers that those people who were objecting to those cuts were somehow socialists. He embraced that. But then he took those people and he turned them into a movement that at this point, doesn't look anything like that. The people who are now most closely adhering to Trump are not those who are any longer embracing the idea of tax cuts and and deregulation. They are people who are embracing the idea that they need to get away from American democracy altogether because they don't trust the Americans around them. And they are eager to usher in what they call illiberal democracy. That Mm -hmm. is a world in which some people really are better than others. And the, the Christian ideology to which they adhere is imposed by not a small state as Republicans embraced from 1981 to 2016, but rather a much bigger state that imposes their will, the will of this minority on everybody else. And that is brand new for the Republican Party. It's a unique moment in our history. This is really valuable to have you remind us of the economic kind of messaging that Trump was using in his first campaign. I'd forgotten about that. It explains why, you know, there are still voters or respondents in polls who believe when they're asked which of the candidates, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, uh, fight for people like you. Trump excels in those numbers which just seems so diametric to um, his life and where he comes from and some of the things he says today. But some of that goes back to what people heard at the beginning, yes? Well, I'm not so sure of that anymore. I think people who voted for him in 2016 heard that economic message, and I think he was giving them quite deliberately that economic message. He fascinates me as a scholar because I see him sort of as a mirror. You know, he is he is reflecting back to people what they want to hear. I mean, he's he's never really been a politician so much as a salesman and telling people what they want to hear. I think the people who still adhere to him say that he is giving them what they want, not because they care at all about the economy any longer. The economy is actually booming. We're one of the best economies we've ever had, but rather because he gives them the idea that their beliefs will be the ones that 
control the rest of the country. So we know, for example, that he is staunchly supported by white evangelical Protestants. But interestingly enough, they are those uh, those evangelicals who are not really churchgoers any longer. They're people who don't like the changes they see around them in society and believe that he is the one with all of his personal flaws that will put down, for example, LGBTQ plus rights or make women behave, you know, do, do the things that will return them to a fantasy world that they imagined existed in the United States in the 1950s or better yet in the 1920s. So I think that that the whole argument was, was it economic or was it, uh, was it, people say cultural, but I would say sexist or racist. And in 2016, based in our history, you could say both. I mean, the idea of not expanding the vote to people who were people of color, women, or poor Americans was tied since Reconstruction into the idea that that population would want things like schools and hospitals and roads, and those things would cost tax dollars. And then, therefore, the calculation was explained. That meant that it was a redistribution of wealth from people who had money, usually white property men, to those who did not, those people who wanted those schools and hospitals. And that's what get, got tagged as socialism as early as 1871. So when you had somebody in the, the 2000 teens, for example, somebody from the Republican Party talking about socialism, they really weren't talking about the, the popular government ownership of property, for example, or of the means of production. What they were saying is, if you let poor people or minorities or women vote, they're going to vote for stuff that costs tax dollars. And that's going to mean your money is going to go into their hands. That's a redistribution of wealth. That's socialism. And that's a very, that's a, a unique definition of socialism in the United States. So that's what he was talking about. And that's why I'm saying that that race and sex and class and and economics all become one in the United States during Reconstruction in the 1870s. Now, I think that's been utterly shattered by the fact that the Biden administration has gotten rid of uh, the the supply side economics that the Republicans put in place in 1981, and has proved that the older system that we used from 1933 to 1981 works. I mean, this is, I say, a booming economy, and if you were truly looking at your interests as people, for example, like the UAW are, they would say, yeah, we're on board with Biden and this old economic system that works so very well for us. But in fact, even though the economy is doing very well, indeed, the, the staunch Trump supporters have only gotten more closely tied to him and clearly see him as now some sort of a religious figure who is uh, offering them to regain their um, their their cultural control of this nation, and the economy has gone out the window. I'm Carrie Miller. If you've just gotten in on the show, you're listening to Heather Cox Richardson, and we're talking about some of the ideas that she writes about in her newest book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Uh, if you've missed much of the show, I really recommend the conversation to you, and you can find it on the podcast Search Big Books and Bold Ideas or NPR Carrie Miller, um, and you can sign up for the podcast and listen. Two other things here that I that I don't want to miss. Um, I was listening to an interesting conversation on the bulwark. Are you familiar with it? Oh, yeah. Moderate yeah. Republic. Okay. So um, they're smart over there, uh, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and they think you're smart, too. You came up in this in this bite that I'm going to play for you. But 
they got into kind of this really uh, deep conversation about what the party is today, the Republican Party is today. And um, Sarah Longwell, you're going to hear Sarah Longwell say, you know, give her her thoughts on where the party is and mention that you uh, talk a lot about white Christian nationalism. And she takes a little issue with that. So here's Sarah Longwell. Most people are like pretty normal. They talk about how they volunteer for their kids' school and, you know, take care of their sick parents. And and like a lot of them, it's tribal. I was doing NPR and I was on with the great Heather Cox Richardson, but she was kind of doing what I hear a lot of folks do. We're like, there's a white nationalist takeover of the Republican Party. And I'm always it's always like a tough one because it's not untrue that there's a real white nationalism strain within the Republican Party, but it is not the dominant strain. What do you think, Heather? I wish she were right. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I wrote the history of the Republican Party um, in uh, 2014, I guess. And one of the things that is sort of heartbreaking to somebody who knows this party as well as I do is that the ideology of the Republican Party, as it was originally articulated and it has come back periodically in its history, is exactly what she is talking about. But if you look at the people who are now in charge of the um of the the levers of the party, they are, you know, the Mike Johnsons and they are the Donald Trumps and they are the, the, the people in the Senate. And I'm not going to throw out a name there because I don't want to give certain people more attention, but they're the people who are speaking for the party. So I think where Sarah is coming from, and she's great, by the way, I think where she's coming from is her work is based in focus groups. And I would say right. that's exactly right, that those people who still have an R beside their name because they want to believe that that old party is coming back do think that way. Um, but the reality is that the people that are calling the shots for the Republican Party right now are the ones controlled by that extremist fringe. And one of the things that you see, I think, more now than you have for a very long time, you know, people have been asking me forever, you know, is the Republican Party dead? Is the Republican Party, you know, going, you know, going to destroy itself. And I always said absolutely not, because it has both historical uh, roots and because it has these institutions that will keep it going the same way that the Democratic Party has, even when people don't necessarily like the Democrats, they're going to keep voting D because, you know, they're on those email lists and that's what they're hearing about. And I have said that about the Republican Party. But one of the things that Trump did, and, and again, our specialties are different. She does voters. I do um, the, 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 the mechanics of the way the government works. And one of the things that the Trump administration did incredibly effectively, or rather the Trump campaign, I guess, although it was operating while he was in office, is they put Trump loyalists in the state parties. So you can see in places like um, Florida, for example, Colorado, Michigan, Arizona, you can Nevada. see how the parties, yeah. Nevada, how the parties got have been have a, the state parties have essentially been run to the ground financially and ideologically. And so one of the things that I think is really interesting in this moment is that I think my old argument that those parties were always going to be there was wrong. I think they've fallen apart now. And one of the things that I'm starting to hear is people saying, I want to get my party back. And I would not be surprised to see the Sarah Longwells and the Bulwark people and those people who are trying to reclaim 
the the real Republican Party with its ideology, um, which again we could talk about, uh, reclaiming a party, whether they call themselves Republican or not, is not entirely clear. But recovering what the Republicans used to stand for and should stand for from the Steve Bannons, Donald Trumps, um, Mike Johnsons, because the, those people who right now have control over the nodes, I would call them, of democracy, including, by the way, a number of Supreme Court seats, um, those people really are such a minority of the American population that we're, they're, they're forcing us into a political and a national crisis in that um, you, you to go back to the declaration, you cannot have a government in which most people feel that they are not represented, that the government does not uh, accurately reflect a set of laws that, under which they want to live. And when that happens, and I'm not talking here about, about you know, a, a military struggle or anything, I'm talking about a a, a, a logical problem when a very small minority tries to take over a democracy at some point the rest of the people say no and the question of how they say no is the one i think where we have in front of us and i don't don't think it's at all unreasonable to think that you know the bulwark people and the 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 excellent scholars like like sarah will say we're cutting those people loose because if we do that and we push them over the edge and let them make the, have their own party, we can mm-hmm. now pick up the independents and the more conservative Democrats that have abandoned us because of that. Of that. So to some degree, I think that it's a refle- her comment is a reflection of the fact we study different things, but I also think it's a question of really, really, really not wanting to recognize that the party has been, the the the, the critical places in the party have been captured by that fringe element. One last question. So I'm going to talk with a number of political scientists and historians and people that come at this from, you know, different scholarship and ideas through the course of the year. Is there, do you think there is a, a core question that I should be thinking about, that I should invite some of our guests to consider when I ask what is American democracy in 2024? Well, let me just start by saying um, there are many different definitions of democracy, and, and you've certainly heard mine because I go right down to the very basics. People will give you different definitions of democracy. Does it include economic rights, for example? What does it mean to have political rights? There's different permutations of what that is. But to me, the central issue of 2024 is what do we do about the terrible disjunction between the mechanics of our democracy and where the majority of voters are? So if we got rid of gerrymandering, of voter suppression, of the Electoral College, of the, the structure of the Senate, which has privileged small states way over large states, if we got rid of the law from 1929, which limited the number of people in the House of Representatives, precisely because people in the the Congress in that era recognized that there were more people living in cities than there were living in the country, and they wanted to make sure that the country continued to have a bigger voice than people in the cities. If we got rid of all those things, which I am not suggesting, I'm just setting this up as an argument here, there is absolutely no doubt that we would have a much different 
government right now. And, and Donald Trump and the current Republican Party would barely have a say in it. But, but that's not the system we have. So is it possible for that popular will in 2024 to outweigh the fact that a small group of people have taken over these crucial places in our system, the Supreme Court, the Speakership of the House, um, the, the, the fact that Donald Trump is running this really shadow presidency, which has never been done in our history before. Is it possible for our system to overcome that? And if it, if it can't, where does that leave us? Heather Cox Richardson's book is titled Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Carrie.